you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wage according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good day, City on a Hill. Wonderful to be with you in what is truly an extraordinary time for our church. I want to thank you for your encouragement, your support, your prayers, and the many wonderful ways you are seeking to pursue faith, hope, and love. If there was ever a time for us to unite together as a City on a Hill, this is it. Uh, recently, I was talking with a good mate of mine, John Tyson, who uh, leads a church in New York, and talking with him reminded me of his reflections on the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was born in Germany in 1904, and he re- received his doctorate uh, in theology when he was just 21 years of age. I don't know what you were doing when you were 21. I was getting my PhD in Mario Kart. But here's Bonhoeffer, this studious academic diving deep into the theology of the church. And when he's 24, he spends a year in New York. And it's here that he meets an African-American guy named Frank Fisher, who invites him to attend his church in Harlem. And here, for the first time in Harlem, he, he sees this fiery gospel preaching and, and men and women of the body of Christ encountering God in a very real and transformative way. So much so that when Bonhoeffer returns to Germany, he's a changed man. But he's not the only one who has changed. Germany has changed as well. When Bonhoeffer left, uh, the Nazis were just the ninth largest political party. But when he returned, they were the second largest. And it's a time of intense uncertainty. And Bonhoeffer can see the people turning toward the Nazis in great number. And he has prophetic insight to see what this means for his people and the church. At this time, the Nazis were allowing Christians to gather for church services, but they'd already began to ban particular parts of the Bible that they deemed too Jewish. 
They're also excluding non-Aryan clergy. And some are going so far as to teach that Jesus Christ has come in the person and work of Adolf Hitler. And so in 1935, as the takeover accelerates and many Christians are sitting in silence, Bonhoeffer steps forward to create an underground seminary. It's established in the rural town of Finkenwald, where a band of brothers rise each day to pray, to read the scriptures, to confess their faith in Jesus and to unite around sacred and shared rhythms. At its heart, it's a vision for a new kind of disciple, a new community marked by unresolved commitment to Jesus, no matter the cost. But when other Christians hear about this underground seminary, many of them are uh, concerned. Uh, uh, they have questions. They, that they think it's all a little bit too extreme. In fact, one of Bonhoeffer's friends, a young historian by the name of Niesel, uh, fears, he actually comes and travels to the camp, uh, fearing that it's all a bit too spiritual. He's suspicious of its spiritualism. How does Bonhoeffer respond? Bonhoeffer takes Niesel into a boat and he starts to row toward Oder Sound. Marsh explains this scene well. When the two rowers reached the far shore, Bonhoeffer led Niesel up a small hill to a clearing from which they could see a vast field and the runways of a nearby squadron. German fighter planes were taking off and landing and soldiers moved hurriedly in purposeful patterns like so many ants. Bonhoeffer spoke of a new generations of Germans in training whose disciplines were formed for a kingdom of hardness and cruelty. It would be necessary, he explained, to propose a superior discipline of life among Christians if the Nazis were to be defeated. He says, you have to be stronger than these tormentors that you find everywhere today. They then got back in the boat and rowed home to the seminary in silence. I love this moment and I love this vision. Here's Bonhoeffer a man with unflinching loyalty to Jesus, looking at the Nazi training camps, amassing their armies and their soldiers and their kingdom of cruelty and hate. And then he's pointing at his small school of discipleship saying, this must be stronger than that. This must be stronger than that. Today, we're continuing in our series in 1 Corinthians, which at its heart is a call for us each to take a hold of who we are in Christ. And it's a prophetic word. It's a timeless and timely word. Here we are living amidst our own time of war, like a kingdom of hardness and cruelty. Our world has been inflicted with sadness and suffering, loss and death. Uh, over 3 million people have been struck by the disease. A quarter of a million men and women, ha women have lost their lives in death. And in Australia, while we have worked hard to limit the casualties, 
the lineup to Centrelik, the red tape around playgrounds and the constant separation and isolation is a reminder to us all that the war is far from over. What do we need in a moment like this? What is required of us, the people of God? Do we sit in silence? Do we hide in fear? No. Now is the time, perhaps more than ever, for us to get in that boat, to remember our identity and the call that this must be stronger than that. If you have a Bible handy, let's go to our reading in the third chapter of 1 Corinthians. Three calls today. First, relationships must be stronger than bitterness. Paul says this, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. So chapter three is part of a long uh, sustained argument beginning in chapter one that concludes all the way at chapter four. And at the heart of Paul's argument is an appeal to address the toxic relationships that are now plaguing the church. This is why he says, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. Now that phrase, people of the flesh, comes from a Greek word, sarkonos, that speaks of a man or woman who is worldly. In other words, it's saying that instead of being guided by the Spirit and living a life that, that mirrors Christ, these Corinthians are living by the flesh and mirroring the ways of the world. D.L. Moody once said, Christians should live in the world, but not be filled with it. A ship lives in the water, but if the water gets into the ship, she goes to the bottom. So Christians may live in the world, but if the world gets into them, they sink. So let's remember the men and women that Paul is writing to are Christians, but like water streaming into a ship, so the church in Corinth are being submerged by the waters of the world. And did you see the other image that Paul uses to describe their behavior, he calls them infants. Now, when you and I hear the word infant, we're probably imagining a cute baby with chubby cheeks. Uh, here's one I prepared earlier. You might like to put a big, oh, cute in the comments below, right? Babies are cute. But you know what else? Babies are also massive complainers. Right across an entire year, a baby sleeps about three minutes. And when they're not uh, sleeping, they're crying and they're complaining. Right? It doesn't matter if it's 3 a.m. in the morning. If they want a drink, you are the one who's got to get out of bed and feed them. Right? And, and, and whether you feed them with the bottle or you mothers out there, you're breastfeeding them for the trillionth time on the night, there's a good chance that they're just going to vomit it up back at you, pass out, and then just wet their pants. Right? Uh, Jimmy Gaffigan says, if you had a roommate who did one of the things a newborn does, you'd be like, you're moving out. Right? And you know what else? Babies lack self-control. Uh, I took my baby girl to the swimming pool. Uh, she was two at the time. For the sake of the story, I'll call her Winter. 
And uh, here we are in this swimming lesson, going around, doing the fun thing, the daddy-daughter thing, when all of a sudden I'm, I'm pushing her through the waters and, and across the waters, I see what is, is, is these fragments of, of dung. I think that's the biblical word for it, dung, right? It's all on this water and, and it's getting bigger and further. And, and I'm looking at it going, what kind of irresponsible parent would allow their child just to let it go in a public pool? And then I realized that that irresponsible parent was me. And so I scoop Winter up onto the side of the pool. And as she's standing, I tear off her nappy. And what happens? What do I see? More poo. Now, What's the point? The point is that acting like a baby is acceptable when you're three. But when you're 23, when you're 33, and you're still carrying on, still complaining, still lacking self-control, still acting like the world revolves around you, it's no longer cute, it's embarrassing. Right now, does Paul love the church in Corinth? Of course he does. Uh, they're Christians. They've been born again. But what he's calling out right now is that you're acting like born again babies, right? Born again babies. Check this out. Verse two, he says, uh, uh, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Right? So instead of deep diving into God's word and chewing on the meat, the Corinthians are like a grown man drinking his mom's breast milk, right? Right? They're not reading their Bibles. They're not engaging their minds with deep theology. They are latched onto worldly wisdom and sucking onto that which makes them just feel gooey inside. Again, nothing wrong with drinking your mom's breast milk when you're three. But when you're 33, it's time to move to solids. Right? And please note, the church's immaturity is seen not only in their lack of biblical depth, but also in how they treat one another. So in verse three, he talks about their jealousy and the strife among the church. And, and then what do you make of verse four? He says, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Now, some of you may recall that this is actually a repeat of what he has said earlier in chapter one, where Paul challenges those in the church for aligning themselves with different preachers and pastors and, and making division. And this is interesting. You know, I'm curious to know why Paul keeps coming back to this again and again and again. It's an important question because in a few chapters time, he's going to address some very hot topics. In chapter six, Paul is going to talk about the problem of porn and lay out a biblical vision for sex. In chapter seven, he's going to talk about singleness, marriage, divorce. In chapter 12, he'll talk about the role of spiritual gifts. And then in chapter 15, he will climb the pinnacle of Christian teaching and give an exposition on the resurrection of Christ and the promise of his return. And yet, when it comes to Paul's letter, most of his time is not given to debates about sex and money or spiritual gifts or singleness and marriage. Why? Because no matter how significant one's teaching, it rests on the foundation of the gospel and his body, the church. 
right? So think about this with me. You might call yourself a Christian and have a very strong, you know, sexual ethic. Uh, you, you might have a, a clear understanding of spiritual gifts. You might get the importance of order in worship and how we must uh, share the Lord's Supper. But if you're harboring bitterness towards a brother and sister, if you're not pursuing genuine relationships marked by respect and understanding, then you are undermining the very gospel we proclaim. As Paul goes on to say, it doesn't matter what you know, what you do, what you say. If you have not love, you have nothing. Now we get this. We get this, don't we? Because our generation, perhaps more than any other generation, knows the value of relationship and community. In fact, only yesterday I drove past this billboard, right? Community is Kindness. Who's going to disagree with that? If ever a generation knew the value of relationships and community, it is ours. And yet, paradoxically, we are also the generation that find community and relationships the hardest to find. Why? Is it the busyness of life? The many distractions that come our way? Uh, Is it the struggles of online engagement and Zoom fatigue? Maybe. But I think the main reason we struggle to establish good relationships is because we've been discipled by a culture that tells us that life is all about me, right? I mean, we may have a billboard that says community is kindness, but every other billboard we read says, follow your heart, you do you, do what you feel is right, right? Which as a mantra works perfectly fine when you're ordering Uber Eats or trying to work out which pajamas you're going to wear for your next day of isolation, But it is totally bankrupt when it comes to forming healthy, godly, loving relationships. Meaningful relationships require sacrifice. Meaningful relationships require commitment. Meaningful relationships require you to lay down your life for the sake of the other. I remember talking with a young woman after one of our Sunday services. And she was talking to me about the fact that she'd seen uh, someone, another woman come to church that she hadn't seen in a very, very long time. And it turns out that this woman was once a friend of hers who had betrayed her trust. Uh, This woman had had uh, an affair with her husband and now the marriage was, was over. And so just seeing her walk into church, not just any church, but her church, kind of lit within her those feelings of bitterness and and anger and pain and hurt. And yet as she's praising Jesus in her worship and and listening to the the word being taught, God begins to minister minister to her heart. Um, The Lord says to her, you need to be okay with her being part of the body of Christ. Because there is only one Christ and you need to forgive your sister. And then she prays, Lord, I want to do this for your glory, but it's going to be so lonely. Would anyone even realize how much this has cost me to forgive her? Who would understand? Not even my closest loved ones would know how much it hurts me to do this. And then God responds, I understand. I see it all. Jesus knows the pain and cost of extending forgiveness after a betrayal. 
couple of days later, she's standing on the street and she sees this woman, this friend walking by, walking past her a second time. And then this woman comes to her. And you know what she did? This woman says to her, will you forgive me? At this point, she reflects and says, if she'd come two days earlier, I would have punched her out. But here there was no violence, just some ugly crying and a completely miraculous hug. You know what that is? That's a living testimony of God's love and forgiveness in Christ. A forgiveness that has the power to bring down the walls of hostility and make us one. City on a hill, in the midst of jealousy and strife, relationships must be stronger than bitterness. Second, worship must be stronger than idolatry. So look to verse five. Paul says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Now, why do you suppose the church in Corinth were aligning themselves with different leaders? Was it because some were more eloquent than others? Was it perhaps because some were more pastoral and and personal? Or was it perhaps that some just got bored and played an old-fashioned game of who's your favorite pastor? That's actually a game I like to play with my wife and kids. Uh, For some reason, I always lose. Whatever the reason when it comes to Corinth, we, we can't be sure, but clearly Paul has zero interest in getting caught in their bidding war. And one of the ways that he helps them uh, deal with this faction is by reimagining their view of leadership, particularly in the church. He asks, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Answer, we are only servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Do you see it? Christian leaders are only servants, nothing more nothing less. Now in the Roman empire, kings were worshipped as gods. Generals were revered as these mythical warriors. And even in Corinth, where they idolized knowledge and, 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 and philosophy, their philosophers and, and, and thought leaders were, were the celebrities of their day. But here's Paul underscoring for us that leadership in the church is different. We don't debate which pastor is best because pastors are not celebrities. Pastors and preachers are servants, right? Servants of Christ. The one who revealed true leadership by getting down on his knees and washing his disciples' feet. You may have come across a colorful Instagram feed called Preachers and Sneakers. Uh, It was put together by a guy to flag the exorbitant lifestyle of some celebrity pastors who strut around in their $5,000 sneakers and have a lifestyle that rival the Kardashians. Uh, Now, for the record, I'm not entirely sure what kind of sneakers the Apostle Paul had, uh, but I suspect that he's not a fan of these celebrity pastors who kind of float above the rest. Now, thankfully, We don't have a massive celebrity um, culture here in Australia, but that doesn't mean that we're free from the sin of idolatry. 
Uh, for those of you who were at uh, conference uh, last year, you remember that I shared the story of how I was invited to uh, speak uh, at a national pastors conference in the US. And I was really pumped for it. Uh, and yet two weeks before I went to the States, I received an email from the organizers explaining that, explaining that one of the other keynote speakers had to pull out and they were asking me if I could take on some of their talks, which ordinarily would be fine. Only for this conference, that other keynote speaker was none other than Tim Keller, right? New York Times bestselling author, Tim Keller, church planting guru, Tim Keller, the best preacher pastor in the world today, Tim Keller. I'm not sure if you know, but I'm a big Tim Keller fan. In fact, when it came to planting this church next to the Bible, the only other book I read on church planting was by Tim Keller, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Tim, right? And so when I heard that he was no longer speaking, I was gutted. And I can give you the surface reason or the heart reason. The surface reason is that I really wanted the opportunity to thank him for the godly wisdom he's had in my life and to sit under his wise counsel. But the more I reflected on it and my disappointment, the more that I realized that something deeper was going on. The reason I was upset was not only because I was looking forward to speaking alongside Tim Keller, but it was the opportunity to speak to Tim Keller, right? Anyone heard of living for the audience of one? Tim Keller is my one. And I can see him now, you know, sitting in the, the front row, peering over his glasses as I exegete the Bible and culture with precision and passion. I'll throw in a few C.S. Lewis quotes because I know he likes that. I might even do a reference to Lord of the Rings, his favorite book. I can just see him beaming back at me with his big smile. And the moment I kind of get down off the stage, then he just starts making a beeline towards me, pushing over all the other pastors. And he comes up to me and he puts his hand on, his sh on my shoulder and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Right? right? It's an ironic story, isn't it? Because I don't think anyone has been as formative in my life uh, when it comes to idolatry than Tim Keller. And yet here I am. And here we are. Now, as Christians... We are called to encourage our leaders, to honour our leaders, to pray for our leaders. But we must never idolise our leaders. We must never ascribe to man what belongs to God. And this is key in Paul's argument. Because in treating pastors like celebrities, they're not only overlooking their role as servants, but they're undermining the very power and glory of God. Look to the imagery in verse seven. Paul says, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth, right? Only God who gives the growth. So what's the point? The point is that it makes no sense to worship pastors when it's God who not only assigns the work, but gives the growth. And I just find this particularly relevant for our church. Because as you will know, throughout our journey, we, man, we've seen incredible growth. We've seen communities formed, leaders raised up. We've seen churches planted and hundreds and hundreds of men and women give their life to Jesus and celebrate in the waters of baptism. Incredible, incredible growth. Now, who's responsible for that? Why are we growing today? 
Because I planted and Andrew Grills watered? (laughs) No, God gives the growth. Now, don't get me wrong. We are well served by many humble, courageous, sacrificial leaders. Ian, Andrew, Steph, Luke, Nick, Alice, Dave, Emily, Louis, Sam, Andy, Joel, Ryan, Richard, Dom, Craig, Simon, Amanda, Elise, Neil, the list goes on. But in the words of Paul, we are nothing, right? We are nothing. God is the one who opens the door for the gospel. God is the one who draws people to himself that they may hear his word. God is the one who unveils the blind eyes and God is the one who takes dead people and makes them alive. City on a hill is not a building of man. We're a city of God. What does that mean? It means there's no room to boast and every reason to worship. Every reason to start your day saying, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your goodness and grace. Thank you for the relationships you have given me and the opportunity to to celebrate you. Thank you for the life I have. Thank you for your love. Thank you, Jesus, for you are worthy to be praised. Relationships must be stronger than bitterness. Worship must be stronger than idolatry. Finally, service, it must be stronger than selfishness. Look to verse nine. Paul says this, For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And so here, Paul moves from the image of a farmer to a builder. And it's helpful to know that many of the great buildings, particularly in the ancient world, not only had different builders, but, but their work spanned many, many years. For example, um, the Parthenon in, in, in Greece, uh, one of the most famous of all temples, took 17 years to build. Uh, the Leaning Tower of Pisa, 199 years. Can you believe it? Almost 200 years and they couldn't get the thing straight. Uh, and what about the, what about the cathedrals in, in Europe? Did you know that most of the great cathedrals took 400, sometimes 500 years to create? One builder lays the foundation. Others come to work on another aspect. They then retire, move on, die. And then someone else enters in to finish the work. What's the point? The point is that it makes no sense to favor one leader over another when Paul, Peter and Apollos were all working together on the same job. Now, did they have different parts to play? Yes, Uh, Do they come at different times, playing different roles? Absolutely. But Paul always knew that he was part of something much bigger than himself. Right now, does that mean there is an accountability for Paul's work or accountability for other preachers and pastors? Not at all. Paul says, if anyone, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire 
and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Right? And so the image is clear. On the last day, the fire of God will test the quality of each person's work. Pastors who use cheap materials will see their work leveled to the ground. But those who center their life and ministry on Jesus will not only endure the flames, but receive his reward. And the point here is not only to warn pastors, but to help us all see God's protective love for his bride, the church. Right? So look to verse 16. Paul says this. Do you, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Now, when Paul talks about God's temple, he's sometimes referring to the human body. That as Christians, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And that's going to become particularly important in chapter six, when he talks about our relationship to sex. But interestingly, it's crucial to understand that in this context, the temple doesn't refer to the human body, but the body of Christ, the church. And that is staggering, particularly for those who are familiar with the story of Israel and the glory of God's temple. Andy Judd, one of the pastors at City on a Hill, who also serves as a lecturer at uh, Ridley College in the Old Testament, shares this. He says, when Israel left their lives of slavery in Egypt, the mighty God who created uncountable stars with a single word came and camped with them living in their midst. The book of Leviticus describes vividly the great joy and privilege that this is, but also the serious risks of having the risks of having of a holy God right next door. His presence is like lightning, a high voltage hazard. He adds, as we move on in the story and God's dwelling place arrives in Jerusalem, the great King David isn't even allowed to lay the first stone of the temple because he has too much blood on his hands. And so he hands to his son detailed plans given by God for the temple, which he completed using the finest craftsmen and materials from all over the world. When it was finally completed, the glory of the Lord filled the temple with a cloud so thick the priests couldn't even carry on their sacrifices. It's incredible. And it begs the question, doesn't it? What do you suppose happened to those who defaced the temple? What happened to people who tried to graffiti it or worse yet, threatened to burn it down? Well, you know the answer to that, don't we? Because that's precisely what they thought Jesus and his disciples were going to do. Remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. But Jesus wasn't talking about a physical temple of bricks and mortar. He was talking about his own body, the body in which the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And this is what makes the gospel so remarkable because in Jesus, we not only see a new and glorious temple raised up, but you are now invited to be part of that one building, right? The church has never been about bricks and mortar. It has always been about the people of God gathering 
around the glory of Christ. And while this heralds great promise, it also signals a warning to us all. Because when you hurt another brother or sister in Christ, you aren't just hurting another brother or sister in Christ. You're attacking the very temple of God. As Paul lays out, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. How? How might we be defacing God's temple? Well, heresy will do it. Gossip will do it. Pride and selfishness will do it. Greed will do it. And then, of course, are the less direct assaults, which are equally damaging. Uh, The Christian who declares Christ with their mouth, but denies him with his life. The Christian who doesn't pray or take the commands of Scripture seriously. The Christian who who doesn't serve and, and rarely gives. The Christian who treats church as something to visit instead of a vision to embrace. And you know what? This not only defaces the temple of God, but it actually undermines everything that we now have in Christ. Look at how our text ends. Paul says this. He says, Let no one boast in man, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours And you are Christ and Christ is God's. If you're a Christian, it's important to ask, what am I missing right now? What am I missing? Because our world is telling us in in a million and one ways that, that we need more. I need more money. I need more time. I need more knowledge. I need more popularity. I need more recognition. I need more religion. I need more is the mantra of our generation. You know what the Bible says? It says that right now you lack nothing. Or to put that positively, in Jesus, you have everything. Whether Paul, Apollos, Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours, right? Your father's forgiveness, yours. Your father's acceptance and approval, yours. Your father's lavish love, guess what? (laughs) Yours. All are yours in Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. That's what's before us and for us in Jesus. And you know what happens when someone takes a hold of that? You know what happens when someone realizes that they have everything in Jesus? They move from bitterness to relationships. They move from idolatry to worship. They move from selfishness to service. There's a guy uh, in our church named Liam. And not that long ago, uh, Liam came to our church with questions. Uh, He wasn't a Christian at the time, um, but through the preaching of God's word, through journeying with other men and women of faith, he made a decision to put his life in Jesus. And uh, by God's grace, we got to celebrate his new life in the waters of baptism. And and what I've loved is seeing how God has stirred in his heart a great vision for what truly matters. You know, Liam works in production as an actor, uh, a photographer and filmmaker. And with his wife, Dana, now he's passionate about creating art that, that points people to the glory of God and the hope that we have in Christ. And yet when COVID-19 hit, he was, man, effectively lost all of his work. 
But instead of raising the fist at God, he put up his hand to help, right? Uh, Here we are closing all of our physical gatherings and working around the clock to put some kind of online service together. And here's Liam saying, hey, how can I serve? How can I help in this hour of need? And in less than 24 hours, he's there literally bringing in his own lights and gear to help the team put something together. And in one sense, you're probably thinking, well, that's kind of small. That's kind of insignificant. The guy on the lights, well, they're just kind of behind the scenes. And yet without his service, we'd be in the dark, literally, right? Or to put it positively, because of his service, because he put up his hand to help, because of what Liam did and what God did through him, we've been able to gather together as God's people around the gospel. We've been able to unite the church. We've had an opportunity to to share God's message. And haven't we rejoiced in seeing that message go around Australia and indeed around the world? I think it's fair to say in the last month, we have seen more people give their life to Jesus than perhaps we've seen in two, maybe three years. That's extraordinary. I mean, just think, I can't wait to get to heaven. We're going to meet men and women who say, I became a Christian during COVID-19, right? That's incredible. How does that happen? Through the grace of God and men and women like Liam who say, hey, I want to be part of something bigger. I want to serve. I want to use what God has given me to see the kingdom of God shine in glory. Let me take this opportunity to thank you, City on a Hill, for the many wonderful ways that you are continuing to shine the light of Christ. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for your creativity. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your leadership and thank you for your love. And for those of you who are tuning in today, who are perhaps just kind of looking on for afar, let, let me encourage you to take a step of faith today and be part of what God is doing, right? We're called City on a Hill, but we are not a finished city. And we need all hands on deck. You know, we have a vision to see the gospel go out. We have a vision to plant many, many more churches. We have a vision to raise up leaders. We have a vision to serve the marginalized and the poor. We have a vision to see hundreds, thousands of men and women in Australia, across the globe, coming to know the beauty, the truth, and the relevance of Jesus. Don't let that opportunity pass. We need your help. We are a people drawn together by the grace of God to live for Jesus, to know Jesus and to make Jesus known. The top of my sermon, I uh, talked about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. In the eyes of the world, when it came to the Nazi army and Bonhoeffer's seminary, which was small, it was quite clear who was stronger. Right? In fact, when the Gestapo closed the underground seminary, it was, it was something of a joke in the eyes of the world. But just as Jesus promised, this small seed grew and grew. Today, the Nazi empire is no more and Hitler is in the ground. But the fruit of the underground seminary, the community, the vision, the work has grown to shape a vision of Christian discipleship and community that has inspired millions. And you know why? Because the tomb of Jesus is empty and Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. He is building his church and the gates of hell shall not 
prevail. And so when it comes to the mission of Jesus, when it comes to light in the midst of the darkness and chaos of this world, know that this must be stronger than that. Relationships must be stronger than bitterness. Worship must be stronger than idolatry and service must be stronger than selfishness. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your glory. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the opportunity to be part of your story, your kingdom and your church. We thank you that Jesus has lived for us. He died for us and he rose for us. And I pray that right now, as we unite together, as your people, as one body, the church, that we'd be a people who would lay down our lives for the cause of the gospel. Help us to take a hold of this hour. Help us to be a city on a hill. We pray this for our good. We pray this for the good of our country and this world. We pray this for the glory of your name. And it's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray and all of God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.